part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 today. You know, that last song that we sang, really every one of those songs were just so perfect for this text because uh, uh, the one that was talking about our different names, that sometimes we do have, uh, believe our name is regret or, you know, rejected or something like that just because the, if we went with our feelings, sometimes uh, when there's sin in our life or when there's just been that distance maybe that we feel from God, that we feel that way. But I love that last song. That's actually a, a song taken from Scripture in the Old Testament, one of the Old Testament saints really felt alone, just really felt kind of like he was overwhelmed. He was facing an army and f- facing difficulties that were overwhelming. And he just, you know, prayed, God, why have you left me here all by myself? And God said, you know, you just need to see with spiritual eyes. You know, you're not by yourself in this. And he began to look and he saw all these angelic armies. God just revealed in the spirit of truth that he was surrounded by all these ones that would protect him. And, you know, that's our lives. That this morning, you may come in here and you say, you know, I really believe that I have trusted Christ. I truly believe that I am a Christian. And yet to think that we feel like a Christian all the time, it, this doesn't happen. And there's times I've never known a person who has trusted Christ who didn't at least once, twice in their life doubt, you know, their Christianity. You know, am I really a Christian? And it usually was a time that there was either trial or travesty in their life. Sometimes it was just because of sin in their life that even though they had been forgiven of that sin, that just sin had come in and maybe their mind and their heart had just kind of walked away from God, but God never walked away from them. So that's why we need a, a solid foundation of Jesus Christ. We waver. We go all over the place. And that's why the answer to our salvation wasn't our ability. If that was the case, folks, we'd be saved some and we'd be lost some. We'd be all over the place. Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher, said it this way. He said, if I went with my emotions, if I went with my own acts, I would have been lost or saved six times just today. Can you identify with that? You know, that if we just let feelings, that's where we have to have truth. And so the book of Romans is, is God's truth. Paul is the one who's writing it down, but it's inspired by God. People say, well, this is what Paul said. It's really what God said. And so this truth is to give us a foundation because we do kind of live in a world that kind of vacillates back and forth. And our own lives go back and forth. Spiritual highs, spiritual lows. So I want you to to be involved in the sermon this morning by uh, engaging in this first question because it's, it's one of the questions that I think the text this morning will answer. What is more tragic, in your opinion, in your mind, think through this, what is more tragic, what is the greater tragedy? To believe that you are a Christian when you really are not or to doubt that you're a Christian when you really are. Now think about that for a second. Just ponder that. I know it's Sunday morning. I'm supposed to be the one, you know, talking, and you're supposed to sit there and just kind of... But what's more tragic? To, to think that you are a Christian and you really aren't. Well, we could easily make the case there that, okay, that has eternal, you know, consequences, to to think that you're a Christian and then find out on judgment day one day that you're not, that that has eternal consequences. But is it as tragic for to to be a Christian, to truly have trusted the finished work of Jesus Christ and and then allow these things in our lives, whether it is our own sin or whether it's just tragedy or different things like that, to begin to to doubt that we're really a Christian? See, that's what I believe Paul was really trying to answer. 
I believe that we're going to find out. Anybody have an opinion? Which one do you think that is more tragic to, to think that you're a Christian, but you're really not? Just kind of raise your hand on that one, okay? Kind of a good number. Uh, what about the second one? To be a Christian and, and yet not really think that you are, have doubts about your Christianity, if you think that's more tragic, okay? I think Craig may have answered uh, both of those, okay? Because but Paul, he's actually, here's our resident theologian then, because uh, that's what Paul says. Paul says, you know, they're both tragic. One certainly has much more of an eternal tragedy to it. But how tragic it is for me to start believing when I've been called a child of God, if I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, for me to allow temporary circumstances. And folks, I don't care if you're in a one week, a one day, a one year, or a one lifetime circumstance. This is temporary. We forget that. But this is temporary. And and that we would allow temporary tragedy our temporary circumstances to determine a feeling that we would have that we're the child of God and, and erase all the work of Christ. That's what Paul addresses here. Now, he gets in pretty technical language. Like I said, Romans 8 is a great book. It's theologically heavy. It's very heavy on the promises too, but you have to kind of weigh through, you know, get some of the, the wording out because sometimes it seems like Paul's being, you know, almost uh, like he's trying to impress somebody because he uses fancy words. Well, Paul was an educated guy. And he just wants us to be sure that we would understand that the work of Christ is complete and that we can put our full faith in him. Because he knew more than anybody that those are the winds of, of our feelings go back and forth. They vacillate more than anything, more than the temperatures or the weather in Georgia. I mean, it really does up and down and all over the place. So this morning we're going to get into this and we're going to be able to see that Paul has already established very much that without Christ, we are in the flesh. We were born with a fleshly nature, a human nature, uh, a nature that was already not just a, uh, you know, kind of headed towards sin. We were born with the sin nature. And last week, if you missed it, I, I encourage you to go back online and listen to that because every one of these build upon the other, every one of these sermons. But last week, let me sum it up in one minute. Paul used two words, the spirit and the flesh, to describe all of humanity. And he said, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, now you're in the Spirit. And we said that that Spirit was capital S, it's the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God comes and dwells in our lives as believers, as we will find today, as children of God, when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Not on our works, not if we went to, to church a certain number of Sundays, not if we got wet in some baptismal pool, or we filled out a card, or they, you know, we had, remember the Sunday school pens? Anybody old enough to remember the Sunday school pens? Uh, not that we had 20 straight years of perfect attendance in Sunday school. All those things are great. And, and yet that doesn't put us in the spirit, only trusting and believing in the work of Christ. So in, one, so in one way, that's great news that we don't have to achieve something, that we can simply believe in what has already been achieved in Jesus Christ. That's why it's good news. That's why we should be sharing it with everybody that we know because what good news, not upon us, but upon Christ. Well, he talked about that, but he also talked about that people are in the flesh. Everybody in here this morning, everybody in the world, but everybody in here, you're either in the spirit and in the flesh. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I say that simply in a way that you have either put your faith and trust of your rightness with God, he's a holy God, in Christ and his work, are you still counting somewhere on yourself? Man, if I can just be good enough, if I can just do this, if I can just try harder, you're either in the spirit or the flesh. 
Well, Paul, as he takes that, he would begin to say, you know, it's tragic to be in the flesh and think you're in the spirit. But Paul, by what we will see today, said, man, it's just as tragic to actually be in the spirit. That is, to be a Christian and then to believe that you're really in the flesh. In other words, just know who you are. Just know who you are. Before I would leave, they didn't do this often, but I went on a particular trip, and it was probably during those teenage years when I was uh, curious. That's a good word for it, curious. And uh, adventurous, as 12, 13, 14-year-old boys can be. And we had a little trip that was going to be for three days, and I'm going to be away from my parents. And I'll never forget, as I walked out the door, Daddy said, now you remember who you are. Now that was, that, that was a double-edged sword. There was a part of that sword that said, you remember that you represent our name. You know, that name Lincoln goes with you. And so, you know, everywhere that you go and everything you do is going to reflect upon that name. So part of it was kind of that cutting, you know, you better behave. Another part of it was so satisfying. Son, as you go out, it was one of my first big trips away with, you know, from mom and dad. Hey, you remember who you are. Just remember who you are. You've got a family back here that loves you. Well, that's what Paul is doing in this section. He said, you just remember who you are. Just know who you are. Not based on emotions, not based on last week's performance, but based on who you are by the truth of God's word. And so this morning we're going to study about that. Uh, you know, we're going to find out that I, I really do believe that Paul would say that it was just as tragic for a Christian to believe that somehow because of their... Uh, whatever is going on in their life, that they've lost that Christianity, I think we would all agree that how tragic it was it would be for somebody who believed that they were, you know, I lived a good life, I tried really hard, I'm going to go to heaven one day, and yet they had never trusted Christ. Both are tragic. So how do they deal with this? Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, so who's he addressing? Can we, if we just stop right there, who is Paul addressing? Christians. He's calling them brothers. He's not just being, you know, real community-minded and calling everybody brothers. He said, okay, he's writing to the church in Rome, to the Romans. And so he's addressing this letter to Christians. He addresses those who are not Christians sometimes. But this right here, he's addressing to believers. He said, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But Paul calls Christianity into a, a life that shows. He, he, what he's saying here is, okay, guys, I'm going to talk to the Christians, the people that, what was the terminology? Spirit or flesh, which one describes the Christians? Spirit. So he's saying, okay, all of you that are in the Spirit, the very Spirit of God lives in you. He said, I want you to know that that is done by God's grace, by the work of Christ and Christ alone. But remember who you are. That's what he's saying. He said, remember, as you go to work tomorrow, as you go to school, he said, remember who you are, that there's a responsibility that comes with this name. Not that earned that name. You've been given that name by the work of Christ. But with that name comes great responsibility. And he wants us to know a great theological truth. He said, before, when you truly were in the flesh, when you were not a Christian, he said, you may have been able to do some good things, but you didn't really have a way of defeating sin. But now that Christ is in you, and now the very Spirit of God resides in you, you actually have the ability to defeat sin. 
Does that make sense? He says, yeah, you have something that the rest of the world doesn't have. Folks, if you're in Christ this morning, if you're a Christian, if you have put your full trust of your rightness and your right standing with God in the finished work of Christ, the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he comes in, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is give you ability to actually say no to things that may still be tempting to you. Now, that doesn't mean that every single lost person, uncried, you know, uh, someone who's not a Christian, can't make a, a proper choice from that. That's not what Paul's saying. He said, as a Christian, you have the very Spirit of God. You're not a debtor to, to the flesh anymore to live according to the flesh. Now I have something inside me. What is that? Is it a function of God? No, it is the very Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not a function. The Holy Spirit is God. And he dwells in you. And so Paul is making this statement here that now we can live this whole different life. I really don't believe that any of us are going to live perfectly. We, we talked, a, you know, what, three weeks ago about what's the longest you've ever gone without sin. And most of us probably, if we really had to evaluate, if we broke the 10-minute barrier, we're probably doing pretty good. Because it's really hard not to have a prideful, selfish, some kind of, you know, thought. That doesn't mean it's all just on the outward, but we know inward. You know, even if we have a smile on your face and say, man, Ricky, it is so good to see you this morning, brother. Man, just good to have you. But if he had hurt me last week, I could still go up there and do that, but in my heart I'm going, man, that guy is just, you know, how do I get back at that guy? He hasn't even said he's sorry for what he did last week. You know, I can have and hide every bit of that. I can have the biggest smile on my face. And so it's one of those things we know about our sin. And we know that we have fallen short, as the Bible said in Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and fall short of this glory of God. So the first thing that Paul's really wanting us to know here is, is that, you know, we probably aren't going to walk a life perfection. None of us will. Is the ability theoretically there? Yes. Because I'm not going to deny that God could allow us and empower us. But I still trust too much in Bobby and not on God. And when I do that, I get way off course. And that's when sin would be able to come back to my life. And so Paul is establishing that. He sees Christ as the only way of salvation. But he said, with Christ, not only do you get the assurance of your salvation, that you're now a child of God, he said, you have the ability to tell sin to hit the road. That's one of the things, folks, when we come into Christianity, here's one of the temptations. Here's one of the great temptations. Okay, I'm going to trust Christ now. I'm going to become a better person. Have you ever had that thought? That because you are a Christian, because you're going to church, okay, I'm just trying to be a better person now. Well, that's great that you have that motivation. But I want you to know that just because you became a Christian didn't mean that all of a sudden you have more ability in and of yourself. It's that God has given you now through his spirit that ability to actually desire something that is of Christ and not of yourself. My go-to sin, because we can all relate to it, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is so hard. When somebody has burned you, forgiveness is so hard. And yet, here's what's going to happen. Without the very Spirit of God, before Christ, we're just going to have to muster up some ability within ourselves and go, okay, I'm just going to be a good person. I'm going to forgive. Oh, I hate that person, but I'm going to forgive. When the Spirit of God resides in us, when the very Spirit of God resides in our heart, now as a Christian, he actually gives us a desire to forgive. The flesh still say, man, I'm still hurting over this. 
the flesh may say, you know, I'm still really burned up over this. But the very Spirit of God inside you will say, you know, man, I've been forgiven of Christ, and I want to be Christ-like. Folks, that's not you becoming a better person. That's Holy God living in you, giving you that motivation. So the first thing that Paul is kind of saying there is, is okay, look, the, the Spirit is there to empower you to holy living. And he's trying to establish all this. And then he's about to take us into one of the, the if you want to say, the, these promises that we have now that we're in Christ. We said that many theologians consider Romans 8 to be uh, the Mount Everest of, of, of all scriptures, that it just is one of these great, great chapters. But do you know that if you're going to actually go climb Mount Everest, you know where you would f- spend your first days? Anybody know what that is? The... Base camp. You go there. Ricky, do you know why you go to base camp first? I mean, logically, because you can't go to the top of the mountain first, but there's, there's a real important reason why you go to base camp and stay there for sometimes uh, three to four days before you start ascending the mountain. Do you know why? To acclimate. Because it is very high. <laughs> Unless you live in Denver, Colorado, or someplace like that, and you're used to the heights, your body is not used to the thin air. And so you go there, and even if you're in the tip-top condition, I mean, you can run 20, 30, 40 miles. You're not used to the air. And so you go to base camp, and you stay there for about three or four days so that your body is actually acclimating to the new surroundings, to the new truth that this air is thinner than the air that you normally breathe. Well, that's what Paul did in these first 11 verses of Romans 8. He said, guys, this is new to you. Not, not that Christianity is new, but he said this truth of who you are in Christ, this is something that is kind of counterintuitive. This just doesn't always make just perfect sense. So he said, I want you to rest in this for a while because as we start climbing up these promises, there's going to be a part of you that says, this is great. And there's going to be a part of you that says, is this really true? So that's what the first 11 verses have been. Now we start getting into this and look what he says in verse 14. One of the first great, great truths. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? The sons of God. Now, that is an inclusive term there. If you're female here today, do not be offended by that. It was written as a very inclusive term in the sense of it meant children of God. The language written to the Romans would have been very male-oriented because of the day, the culture, and the time. But uh, it means that you very much are the sons of God, the children of God. If you're female here, it's not excluding you whatsoever. But he says this dramatic statement. He said, those who are led by the Spirit, those who have the Spirit, are the children of God. Now, this leading of the Spirit isn't, okay, you know, that God tells me exactly where to go, left, right. It's not so much that he's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here. He said, if you have that Spirit, you're a child of God. You don't have the spirit. You're still of the flesh. The good news is they're available to you, but you're not a child of God. Paul is trying to accomplish something here that I think we struggle with in modern Christianity. And I would say that we struggle a lot with in American Christianity. Folks, there are often times, if we're just honest with ourselves, that the most excited thing that we are about becoming a Christian is that we get to go to heaven. I mean, would you agree? It's a pretty good deal, especially when we think of the alternative. And so, so much of our mind can be focused on, okay, I get heaven, I get heaven. 
can I show you, share with you something that's even better than getting heaven? You get God. Heaven without God is pointless. Heaven is heaven because of God. And so sometimes we get the destination so much in focus, or we get, I mean, when I trusted Christ when I was 12 years old, folks, I promise you, as a 12-year-old boy, I promise you, I was doing it probably more so to dodge hell than I was to get heaven. I mean, I, I just, in that church, man, it was hellfire damnation every week. And sometimes they'd leave off, leave off, you know, the fire part, and we just had hell and damnation. Or they would kind of switch that. But, I mean, that was kind of, and so I grew up in it as a kid going, I don't want that. What's the, what's the alternative? And, and they would tell me about heaven. I would go, I want that. It had very little to do with Jesus Christ. It had very little to do with a passion and a relationship with God as much as it had to do with the destination. And could you say that sometimes that's your life too? You know, we, we say, yeah, we're glad that Christ is the only way to get there, but man, we're, we just want something. Here's the truth. When Christ comes into your life, folks, this is so incredible. You're not just saved from something. You're saved to something. And how tragic it would be to only focus on what we're saved from and not what we're saved to. And that's what Paul tries to introduce here. He said, now look, you're, you're, are you saved from your sin? Yes. Are you saved from, you know, separation from God? Yes. Are you saved from hell, a place called hell that's real? Yes, you're saved from that. But Paul says, I want to tell you what you're saved to also. I'm not going to deny what you're saved from, but I, I want you to know what you're saved to. And he begins to tell us that in that verse 14. Look what he says again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See that word for in verse 14? It's one of Paul's favorite words in this chapter. And what he's doing is connecting. Here's what Christ did, and here's the ending result in your life. Because Christ did this, and if you trust this, this is what happens. For is a connecting word. Does anybody have either the ESV Bible or the NASB Bible? Do you have one of those two versions? Okay, Ricky does. Some, okay, will you look? Will you look, Brittany, for me? What is the first word of verse 2? Verse 3. Verse 5. Verse 6. Verse 13. 14. 15. 18. 19. 20. 22. 24, 29, and 38. Okay, excellent job, excellent job. Did you see a little bit of a pattern there? Now, does Paul have, is Paul just kind of, you know, not that educated and he has a very limited, uh, you know, language? You know, he, he doesn't have a wide vocabulary? No. Constantly, what he's doing in Romans 8 is so, because Jesus did this, Here's what you get. And he uses this word for to connect what Christ did to now the life that we have in Christ. And since this is a, a great chapter about the end result, he uses this word over and over and over again to connect those. This morning, we want to look at three of those. This is what we have. If you've trusted Christ this morning, if, if you know without a doubt that you've put all your faith in rightness with God in what Christ has accomplished, these things, these three things that we find in the scripture is who you are. It may not always feel like it, but this is who you are in Christ. What have you been saved to? 
First thing, you are chosen and adopted. You're chosen and adopted. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul uses the example of adoption. And he uses that to to talk about how uh, now we are with God in two different ways. In an emotional way, in a relational way, but also in a legal way. There's a family way about this, and there's a legal way about this. Would you agree that on one hand, adoption is very emotionally based? You love this kid. And I said, I want to adopt this kid because I I love little Sally, and, and little Sally doesn't have a parent and, and, and I want to be that parent and so I, I, I'm going to adopt that child. And it's very emotional. It's very love oriented. It's very heartfelt. Would you agree also that adoption is a legal process? Yeah. For, for it to actually take place, you actually, we had some friends, I had some great, great fan, friends and they, their adoption this past week were, uh, was finalized and, and they posted on Facebook, you know, them with the baby in front of the judge, and they said, it's final. You know, little Joey is ours. Very emotional, but very legal. Well, here Paul uses both of those to tell us who we are in Christ. Isn't it an emotional thing that God loves us? Yes. He says, man, he loves you. That's his motivation. He loves you. Legally, have we been adopted by God? Yes. See, he uses a Roman term because in Rome, adoption was a little bit different from the way that we do it. There's a a legal intimacy that is there. When you were adopted in Rome, in Roman life, you became a full child of your parents, whoever's adopting you. You didn't come with partial rights. You know, okay, you only get partial this, partial that. There was no tag. There was no asterisk. You were adopted, and the minute that you were adopted, it was as if you were born into that family from natural birth. No discount, no asterisk, no, okay, we love these three the best, but you know we love you enough to at least adopt you. In the Roman culture, when you were adopted, you were a full son or daughter of the people who adopted you. Paul has that in mind when he says, that when God adopts you, chooses you, elects you, brings you into the family. He said it's with full rights. It's also with full inheritance. It's not like, okay, these are the three natural born ones. You get, you know, a a third, a third, and a third. And sorry, you get to live in the house, but you don't get the house after daddy passes. You know, you don't get any inheritance. No, when you were adopted in the Roman culture, full rights, just as if you had been naturally born into that family, you get full rights. So, so there is no second class here. You're totally uh, a child of those parents. Here's another thing. When you were adopted, a process took place where all your former debts, everything that you even owed, school debt, school loans, vanished. Everything's gone. You get a new name and all your debts from your past, gone. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? I mean, you can see the spiritual implication there that he's saying, okay, as children of God's king, all your spiritual debt that you really do owe has been taken care of in Jesus Christ. 
So Paul is explaining this. It would have made sense to them. Another thing about Roman adoption, it was done in, always in public. You know, my friends this past week, they went into the judges' chambers, and so it was pretty private. It was just the intimacy of, of those people that were immediately involved. In the Roman culture, if it was adoption, you went out to the public forum. You went out to a place where it, the public square, because it was very, very public. And here's how they made sure that it was even more public. You could not adopt in Roman life unless you had seven witnesses. Now, I don't believe that they picked out seven because it's a good biblical number. They wanted this to happen. You would usually pick somebody of varying age because here's what they wanted to happen. If you were adopted now in 2015, they didn't want the question to come up in 2035, 20 years later. I don't think he was really adopted. I don't know that. So they had seven witnesses. And they tried to get varying ages so that even as people would pass away and die, there would always be another one that was, you know, younger. Say, hey, I was there. I was one of the seven witnesses. I know that Joey is his son and, or her, you know, uh, a member of that family. Now, remember all that. Paul is writing to the Romans. They would have understood that. That's kind of new to us. And he's talking about this emotional intimacy and this legal intimacy. And where does it lead? Last part of 8.15, he said the second thing you get out of this is you get to cry out, Abba, Father. Look again, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. Here's the end result. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is probably one of the most intimate words in, in all the Greek language. It's uh, our word for daddy. It's our word, uh, kind of strictly translated, it would be more of a papa in a lot of cultures. If you have an, an Italian, anybody have an Italian background? Papa is, you know, that intimacy. Papa. When, when and if we have grandchildren, I, I want them to, you know, you always say, I want to be called this, I want to be called that. You end up being called whatever they call you because it's so cute, you can't deny it, you know. So it's one of those, but if I just had my choice, I love the way Papa just comes off of them. Papa. Can you imagine? I mean, she could get or he could get anything she, he wanted. Papa. That's the intimacy. That's the intimacy that Paul is trying to create here. He's covered the legal definition. He says, look, legally, you are not second class. You're not an add-on to the family. It's as if you were born into that family from the very beginning. But I want you to know that with that comes this intimacy. It's not just legal. It is intimate down to the most intimate of all things. You can cry out to this God, holy God. You can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Now, is that kind of a wide variance from the Old Testament? What do we know about the Old Testament? Did they cry out, Father? You won't find that term in the Old Testament. I think it's mentioned twice, but in kind of a different circumstance. You find it throughout the, no, the whole New Testament. That One of the biggest differences between Old Testament and New Testament is this relationship as we see it with God. In the Old Testament, He is holy God. And you know that the Jewish people, remember, they removed all the vowels from the name of God so that it was unspeakable, unpronounceable? Because they go, you know, we're not worthy to call God by a name. We'll just kind of call him God. 
But we're not going to call him by a personal name because, you know, he's holy. And we might die if we called him. If we tried to be that intimate with God. And so the Jewish people, they just removed all the, the vowels. And so it was nothing but just consonants there. So it was unspeakable. You know, you couldn't even pronounce it because they said, well, just, that's how high and lifted God is. New Testament comes along. More so. Christ comes along. Always promised in this relationship, the Old Testament. Christ comes along, and what do we see? Jesus used this term every single time they referred to his Father, except for one, and that was a different context. My Father. Teach us how to pray. Well, here's how you pray. Our Father. Well, teach us this. My Father. And we get this intimacy in the New Testament. Did God lose his holiness? Did he become just some big granddaddy in the sky all of a sudden in the New Testament? No, he is still holy God. He's just as holy. But because of Christ, now we have a new relationship. Now we have the availability to be able to come in and trust that work of Christ. And now we are adopted as the children of God. We are now able to cry out, Papa. One of my favorite theologians is a guy by the name of J.I. Packer. Uh, amazing guy. And he wrote this book about knowing God. Let me read to you, because I sure don't want to mess it up, what he said about this introduction in the New Testament of this phrase, Father. He said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of our adoption. He said, it all comes down to that. He said, you want to understand the New Testament? You thought this word father, this intimacy of being able to cry out, Papa, Daddy, this intimacy of this. He said, you don't get the New Testament. You're still back in the law. You're still back in a very legal relationship that you've got to do by your own efforts. Now, there's some here this morning, that whenever I preach this and anything has to do with fatherhood, there really is a mix throughout the congregation. For some of you, the most precious words you've ever uttered out of your mouth, some of the sweetest thoughts you've ever had in your life are the thoughts of a daddy and a father. Because you just had a good earthly father that loved you. For others is the most painful thought in your life. And it's painful because do you, do you realize that when we were born, that God has put in us a desire to have a father, a relationship with a father, and, and a mother? It's part of being made, you know, just how he kind of put our DNA together and how he kind of constructed us as, as human beings. He said, okay, 
I'm going to put in you a need, a desire to have this closeness of Father. And that's why it hurts so much. And I, I realize that there's some people here today that just the mention of God as Father, you're going, hey, if he's anything like my Father, I'm walking away right now. And so I realize that, that this brings up, you know, we talked about intimacy. We realize this is as intimate as it gets. Paul realized that God our Father intimate, realizes that this morning. But for all of you that, that said, okay, you know, I, I really didn't have that kind of a daddy. Here's the hope of Christ. Guys, here's the hope of Christ. He says, you didn't have that earthly father? And I'll be a daddy for you. It's not an empty promise. It's not just an emotional promise. He is legally, by this legal definition, he said, I have paid the price, I have done everything so that you can, in all authenticity, in all power, in all intimacy, call me Father. It's one of the greatest gifts of being a Christian that we can just cry out, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, I blew it today. He says, yeah, son, I, you know, I, I saw that, but I've covered it with my son's blood. Daddy, I'm, I'm hurting today. Yes, son, I already know that. See, I know everything that's on your heart. I know everything that's on your mind. But daddy, I don't even have words to tell you. He said, that's why I already know everything, so you don't have to try to describe it, because I already know it. Folks, that's what Paul starts to present here. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself. Now, what kind of spirit is this? Who, who is this? Holy Spirit, capital S. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit within us, bears witness with what? Are you, are you a spirit person too? Yeah. We have flesh, we have blood, we have spirit, soul. He said the Holy Spirit confirms to your spirit because you're spiritually made that we are the children of God. Now, why would he say that? Why don't we just read it, acknowledge it mentally? Why does he say the Holy Spirit affirms to your spirit that you are a child of God? For this reason. When tragedy, when hurt, when, when all these things start to happen in our lives, I mean, life is just going sour. We can't seem to win. We begin to doubt who we are. Is God just mad at me? Does God angry? Does God even exist? And he says, that's when the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will affirm in your life, in the midst of your hurt, that you are a child of the living God. When, when do we doubt? Look down at verse 35. It's not, we're not going to cover it today, but look down at verse 35. This is a promise that we'll see later on. But this is when we begin to doubt the fatherhood of God. Look what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, listen to the things that he lists. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Do those kind of things tend to separate us from the feeling that we're all loved by God? When those kind of things are going on in your life? And when he was talking about our sword, what do you think he was talking about? Remember, this Roman culture. What was happening to Christians in first century Christianity? They were finding the sword, man. Or the sword was finding their lives. They were dying as martyrs, many of them. 
Paul is trying to stay here. Look, when we get into those situations in life, when tragedy comes upon the Christian, here's one of the greatest lies of Satan, guys. Greatest lies of Satan. Hey, if we just trust Christ, all of our life will just work out perfectly fine. And it is a lie from Satan. You won't find it biblically. And so when tragedy comes, we think that God has abandoned us. No, the Bible actually says, don't be surprised when there's suffering. Next week, Jeff is going to preach the next passage in here. And, and it says very much that we're going to join in on the sufferings of Christ. But we have this relationship. Paul gives us a glimpse of who we really are instead of who we feel that we are. Last one, really quickly. He says, not only are you heirs now, but now you're joint heirs. You're not just kind of written into the will. I've, I've never been written into a will. So I don't know what it's like to gather in a room with four or five other people, you know, and maybe they were going to read the, the will and you thought you were the favorite son. And then they read the will and you're going, they didn't even call my name, <laughs> you know. Or, or you get left the dog. You know, they get the house, the boat, the yacht, you know, the 401K. All that goes to your brother and to Bobby the dog, you know. I've never been in that situation in real life to, to be in the presence of somebody reading a will so that, you know, you see what you get. But here's, here's what Paul is saying. He said, look, you know, you're, you're not just an heir of God. You're a joint heir with Christ himself. Do you think God pretty much has found favor in Christ his son? Answer that out loud. Do you think that God has found favor in Christ His Son? Do you see the promise here? I mean, if I have found favor, as God would say, in Christ my Son, and I am a joint heir with Christ, is that a pretty good place to be? Isn't that amazing? I mean, it, it really wouldn't bother us if we say, okay, we're heirs of God. And Christ is going to, you know, supreme. And yet, if we can just get our little toe into heaven, we're okay. I mean, in a, in a worldly kind of way, you know, especially given the alternative, we say, hey, I'll, I'll take, if I just get in by the hair of my chinny chin chin, I'll, I'll take heaven. But see, that's when we focus on the destination and not the relationship, as we're so prone to do. Here he said, the same favor that I have found in my son, I find in you. Why? Because you are now in Christ. Favorite term in all the New Testament. I don't see myself that way. Do you see yourself that way? Not that we're going to be Christ. Okay, don't, let's not take it too far. Some, there's actually some religions that actually have said, okay, what this means is that you're actually going to be your own little God of your own little planet. That's not what God is saying. Well, he said, because of what Christ has done for you, you are not just an heir to the kingdom. You are a joint heir with Christ. Everything that Christ, you know, in, in that favor that God has to Christ, that is yours in him. Not because of your works, but because you really tried hard. You're a joint heir with him. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him also be glorified with him. Jeff's going to cover that next week. And so we begin to see this. We begin to see that all these promises that God has made as a child of the king. So let me go back and close with my beginning question. 
What is more tragic? Somebody who's not a Christian because they're, but be, uh, they're a good person, they try really hard, so they believe that they are a Christian. Or somebody who truly is a child of God, has been adopted by God himself, can cry out, Abba, Father, has the right to call him Daddy, Papa, and is an equal heir with Jesus Christ. Which one's more tragic? I think, can you say that Paul's trying to make a case for both of those? He certainly is not going to deny somebody who thinks they're a Christian who's not. He says, ah, that's not a big deal. It's eternally a big deal. But folks, it is a big deal when you and I believe by all the ups and downs of our spiritual life and we don't see what God has made available to us through Jesus Christ. All of this would be pompous and braggadocious if we said that we earn this in any form or way. But it's not earned. None of this, none of these promises are made because we have done the right thing. It's because Christ did the right thing and he died in our place. And when we put our trust in him, that's who we are. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, I... It is impossible for me to preach, Father, today the beauty of this passage. Father, it would be like me going to the Grand Canyon and then trying to come back and describe the awesome vision of how majestic that Grand Canyon really is. And yet, Father, I trust that your Holy Spirit will give us insight today. And Father, I pray for those that truly, Father, as you would describe them in the flesh, that, Father, that they would see that their hope is not them becoming a new, improved image of themselves, a new, improved model of themselves, trying harder, getting wet in some baptismal pool. Father, I pray that you would reveal to their heart that there is only one way to become a child of the living God, and that is through the finished work of Christ. But, Father, I, I pray, I believe that many here, if not most here today, Father, very much that they are Christians. They are brothers and sisters in this family of God. Father, will you reveal to us who we really are? How complete this is? Because, Father, there's going to be days, and maybe even a day this week, that I'm not going to feel that way. My emotions are going to make me feel like I am an orphan. And you cry out from the heavenlies. No. You have been bought by the blood of my son you have been redeemed and this is who you are so father Abba father we cry out today just bring this as as a place of worship as a place of confession as a place of rest for our weary souls today that we would understand this truth as we give all this to you in Christ's name amen Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.